to the Lord, the Almighty. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 15. Uh, After a couple weeks away, uh, it's, must admit, a little nervous to be doing this again. So, yeah, of course, I'm always nervous. It's just a little bit more this time. So thankful for Reverend Dan Smith, uh, who brought the word the last couple weeks, and the elders of Grace Bible that afforded me the time away and their ministry uh, here while I was gone, and which continues. We've been a, a bit hit and miss throughout the summer, working through John chapters 14, 15, and 16. It's a particular unit near the end of Jesus' ministry. It's his last teaching uh, to the 12 slash 11 disciples that are now remaining uh, as he's heading on his way toward uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, there he'll have another significant uh, part of ministry in John 17 would be his high priestly prayer. But 14, 15, and 16 cover many different facets, uh, but one that permeates throughout will be this role of the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit, and what it is to abide in Christ and to enjoy the work and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So that's been my intent to bring that emphasis out in these three, four uh, chapters. We're at chapter 15, and this is an ominous part of the teaching. We've been thinking about nice things up until this point. Um, He's building a house for us. He goes to prepare a place for us. Uh, We're going to dwell with him, abide in him and with him. Uh, We're to have his love in us and through us and love with and for one another. And now the theme diametrically changes to that of hatred. So verse 18, John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of this sin. But now they have no excuse for that sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that I had done, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, the comforter, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's direction as we go.
Father, we come in the name of Jesus and we ask for that application of the Holy Spirit as always uh, to understand your word. And this is a particularly challenging topic. Uh, We ask the Holy Spirit would give illumination to our understanding and to the way we might live. We thank you for hearing this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, the previous section, Jesus spoke about uh, the power of love, and now he's turning to talk about the power of hate. And instead of the privileges that are ours in Christ, he's going to speak of persecution for the believer. Early in this section, he's talked about his own people, and now he's going to talk about the world and how they treat them. Before he talked about his friends, he called us friends, and now he talks about enemies. In this section, indeed, the word hatred or hate is used about seven times. Uh, In a couple verses, just in rapid fire, about five at a time. So this indeed is, is the theme. And John, who pens this gospel, also wrote the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John, he's writing to encourage the believers and to help them know how they know they have genuine saving faith. And he has a series of, of tests, you might say, to help us understand. But in the midst of all this, 1st uh, John chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So you see this diametric opposition. We, we are a people of love, and we love one another. And we get a, a taste of that when we share those updates like we did this morning of how people are doing and what's happened in their lives and the losses that they've experienced. And you, I can hear and I can feel uh, the, the sympathy and the empathy that is among the body as they share in this love life together. But opposed to that is the world which really is known by hate. Now they would cloud it with terms of love, right? Free love and love is love and all those kinds of pithy phrases. But the reality is they don't know what love is. They don't know its definition and they don't really know how to best express it. There are common grace ways that they enjoy it. But we are to be the people of love, and the world is a people of hatred. We say the world. What do we mean by the world? And uh, sometimes this term cosmos, this term world, uh, can mean like the created sphere of the globe and the universe. Or sometimes it can refer to all the peoples on the earth. And other times, like, like in this case, it refers to a system, a thought system, a philosophical system that is opposed to the Spirit, opposed to the things of God, doesn't know God, doesn't think after God. That's the world. Now, we'll come to the verse in just a few moments that talks about their scriptures. Did you realize that the world has scriptures? Well, the world does, 
and they take their various forms. They can take the forms of constitutions and bylaws. They can take the forms of other codes of conduct, civil uh, or private. They can even take doctrinal statements. They can even take scriptures of various kinds and even the Bible. And the part, one, one uh, representative part of the world in this chapter will be the Jews. That would be the religious leaders, the religious authorities of the day. They are indeed religious, but they are of the world. And perhaps we'll be able to unpack that in a bit. But that helps us understand, just starting out, what do we mean by the world? Those approaches to life that are anti-God, no matter how cozy they're couched, where does this come from? What, what, does, what causes hatred? Now, if indeed there's persecution, that will be difficult. That will be painful emotionally and probably physically. But it can, it can help us to understand the why. We don't always get to understand the fullness of the why questions in life. And even in this one, we won't understand its, its fully orbed dimensions of why, but part of the why question is answered here in this paragraph. Why does the world hate Christians, hate the church? Partly ignorance or unknowingness. They, they don't know the one who sent Jesus. Verses 18 and 19 kind of unpack this. The world hates you. They hated me before they hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. Like-minded people like like like-minded people. Birds of a feather flock together. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he'll go on to say that they, they don't know the one who sent me. In verse 23 says, they hate me, they hate the Father also. They, they don't know God. They don't have a proper concept or understanding of God. And this, this ignorance is both intellectual and spiritual. And it is a, the, where the rubber meets the road, it is seen in a failure to recognize that Jesus is in fact the representation of the Father, the manifestation of God in the flesh, and doing the work of the Father. That failure to recognize is going to lead to hatred. For the believer identifies Jesus, Jesus as Lord and Savior, and the Son, eternally begotten of the Father. Now with this, there is a, shall we call it a relativism or an absolutism. The world world hates Christians because they claim to have an absolute truth in Jesus over against the world's beliefs and behaviors. And if we're unwavering, if we're unflinching on codes of conduct on moral behavior, ethical implications of the gospel, that kind of rigidity 
Well, meets against the relativism of a society and a culture. And they simply will not like it. And beyond that, they will hate it. They will hate the ones who bring the message. Which, I suppose, then is a resentment. They resent Jesus' standards and his claims. They want it to have nothing to do with it. Verse 22 says, Jesus says that they've rejected my words. And verse 24, they've rejected my works. So they may have started out with a kind of unknowingness, but now they certainly have a sense of knowing. But they will not know God because they will not know the words and works of Jesus. They deny the words and works of Jesus, and therefore they cannot know God, not in a relational way. So Merrill Tenney kind of summarizes it this way. He says, Jesus rebukes human sin and condemns it. He uncovers the inner corruption and hypocrisy of men, and they react violently to the disclosure. You ever, you ever in your own little life experience been uh, unveiled, been exposed? And how do you react? Sometimes the fear and the shame uh, cause you to react violently. And then defending yourself, defending your actions, defending your behaviors, your thoughts. Well, Jesus uncovers the corruption and the hypocrisy and people of the world react violently to the disclosure. Jesus strips away all excuses and exposes selfishness and rebellion against God. This, this, this is part of the answer why. Again, it doesn't make the experience necessarily easier, but Jesus does want us to know that when it happens, this is why. It really has more to do with Jesus than it does you. There is one last one that I would want to highlight, and that's in verse 25. Um, the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Without cause. Without cause is kind of a uh, formal term in professional circles. You can get fired without cause or without reason. Uh, but this is the, uh, a bit of the flip side. There's, a, there's really no reason why the world should hate Jesus. Not in reality. But John's gospel began that way. The light has shone into the world, and the world loved darkness rather than light. They love the darkness, and they don't like the exposure that comes. But there's no excuse. So might, might we summarize it this way? Sin is unreasonable. Sin is irrational. It doesn't make sense. So when we see that happening in the world, it is chaos. You know, and that, that is the fundamental idea of chaos. It doesn't make sense. It's unreasonable. It's irrational. But they can even put a proof text to it, right? Again, it says their law. This is the Jews' law. The Jews, more particular, their authorities, their religious leaders. Yes, 
grievous is the reality that much of the hatred in the world permeates, even originates, in the religious communities. No, I'm not saying converted, saved, or born again, but religious, merely religious. Sin doesn't make sense. Now, this is a quote uh, from Psalm probably uh, 35 and verse 19 or Psalm 69 and verse 4. Both say, who hate me without cause. Sin doesn't make sense. Well, one of my boys shared with me a, uh, one of the, uh, a CEO um, wrote, a, 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 I'm assuming, a public letter uh, kind of exposing, highlighting some of the administrative and uh, judicial decisions that have been made in some of the big cities that have at least allowed violence and murder uh, with, without being able to stop it. And, and I, I, I try to engage a bit in conversation you know, my mind is going here, obviously. But, you know, I wonder, I wonder, will, will the politicians read that letter? Will they read it? Will they see it, read it? And will the eyes be, oh, wow, look at, look, look at the decisions we made. Now, we could be talking, in this case, um, about violence, murder. Uh, but, but maybe in your case, economics, might have, might have a greater impact on you. So that's what you're feeling right now. The ups and downs of markets, and you're wondering, you know, why can't they just follow the, you know, the principles of capitalism that we know work? You know, I'm getting editorial. They cannot see, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't be shocked, and we shouldn't be surprised at their irrationality, their unreasonableness. They're in the darkness. They're in sin, and they cannot see the irrationality of sin. And that then will lead to animosity, hatred, and persecution when it comes to the things of faith in Jesus Christ. One way. The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus uh, Ironside, in his commentary, he, he tells the illustration, this is years and years ago now, but when inland Africa was beginning to be opened by missionaries, and uh, the wife of an African chief uh, came to visit the missionary, and the missionary was standing outside by a tree, and by the tree he had a mirror uh, tacked onto the tree. And this, this chief's wife had never seen a mirror, and she's looking at it, and she's asked the missionary, who's the person inside the tree? And the missionary tries to explain, no, it, it's, it's a glass, it's a looking glass kind of thing, and, and that's, that's you. And she was horrified. She had never seen herself before. She didn't know what she looked like. She'd never seen the tattoos and the marks uh, and the piercings that formed her face. She had never seen the hardness of her features. And she was horrified at the person in the tree. And she finally began to grasp a little bit what this looking glass does, and so she wanted to buy it. 
from the missionary. The missionary did not really want to part with the mirror, but she was persistent, and he didn't want to cause, you know, trouble down the road. So he gave her the mirror, sold the mirror, they came up with a price, and she took it, and she said, I will never let this glass make faces at me again. And smashed it on the ground. Now, we can understand this culturally and societally, and we can be respectful and honorable in that, but this is, in a way, a picture of the world looking at you, looking at the teachings of Jesus, His Word and His works as they are fleshed out, as they live out in you, and they see the reflection of themselves over and against the love that is in the community, the body of Christ, and they hate it. And they will do anything in their power to get rid of that reflection. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. Now, perhaps let's, let's, let's leave the, the negative, shall we? At least we'll try. There's a few positive elements maybe hidden within the passage here. Verse 19 talks about Jesus and his, his choosing work uh, of his disciples. He says, the wor- you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The believer has been separated from the world unto the Lord. Now, Jesus had, had just a couple verses earlier, verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? For what? that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. This calling is to go. This calling is to go and to be fruitful and multiply disciples on the face of the earth. That's what the calling is for. But if we're to do that in a godly way, in an effective way, might we call this holiness? Holiness in its root form is, is this idea of separation, separated from and unto a purpose. And we've talked about this over the years. It's not to separate from the center and then put to the side. That's not that kind of separation. It's to take from the peripheral and to make center. God takes a people and he makes them the center of his attention, the center of his application of redemption. And he gives them a purpose to go represent him, bearing fruit, making disciples. And so that is who we are and what we do. We go. It it implies the whole notion then of not just a physical, you're different, but a ethical, you're different. There's a holiness about this reality. So, um, I, I tread carefully here because we're not to be a people of hatred, known by hatred. We're to be a people of love, as we've seen earlier in this chapter, and yet... If the world loves only its own and who conform to its own spirit accept its values and worship false gods, 
How do we receive that? How do we respond to that? Well, the psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 127 and 128 bring this conflict of values. I love your commandments over and above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. As a people who are devoted to love, we cannot help but hate anything that isn't. Love is not the absence of hatred. Love is the elevation of that which is truly good and pure and right and true. God and His Word. And anything not in that direction, then we revile. Again, John would write in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see this, this contrast of light and dark, of love and hate. And as we love and the more we love, then we will live in love and we will begin to see and reflect all the darkness back into the dark world. They will not like it. Now, again, I don't want to dice it too finely, but it may help us to see that in 1 John 2, it didn't talk about the people, did it? It talked about the world and the things. And we talk about the world as the, the things of the world, the, the system and the thought which is opposed to God. Um, we need to love those who are created in the image of God and who are lost in utter darkness and death. We need to love and show them the love of God in Christ. But we must put away from ourselves and from our midst all that is not holy and is not God. Jesus will pray for us in chapter 17, verses 14 and following. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, more could be said on this aspect, but let's move on to another attribute, and that is of humility. Jesus brings us another 
uh, repetition of this phrase in verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. The last time he said this was in chapter 13 and verse 16 when he took up the towel to wash the disciples' feet. And it had to do with a humility of service. He says, the, the disciple's not greater than the master. If I'm doing this, so must you. The chosenness entails yet the privilege of being hated and persecuted for bearing the fruit on behalf of Christ. We, we are servants, we are slaves under the sovereign hand of the Lord and in the name of the Lord. It's all Him. Even as we sang in our, our favorite hymns, He loved us. We love Him because He first loved us. While we are at sinners, Christ died for us. We, we keep this humility. It doesn't lead us to an arrogance or even in the midst of the persecution, a stubborn, hard-hearted resistance that pushes back, but one that yields humbly as a servant of the Lord. Might we even say that there is an element of happiness in this we must go to another place in the Scriptures, and that would be Matthew chapter 5, the persecution Beatitudes. We call them the Beatitudes, and it says, blessed is the one, blessed are those. This word blessed can, can mean, in some context, this element of happiness, blessedness, exalted, joy. Matthew 5, verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others persecute you, revile you, and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account, for no reason. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You were not alone. This is nothing new. Now, it might be new in our own experience. Personally, it might be new in our Western experience. This is nothing new. It's been this way even from days of old, ancient days, thousands of years ago, the people of God, even under the old covenant, the prophets. How much more for those of the new covenant in Christ? The disciples are told in um, Acts 5 that they cannot preach Christ, but they preach Christ. They're put in jail. The angel lets them loose from jail and they're out. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting my stories mixed up. Five is a long chapter. They're released after being beaten. And here it says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. For the name. I'll be honest, I don't suffer well. When accusations and lies and things come flying at me, I, I in my spirit at least, want to push back. Want to stand my ground. Augustine, the church father, he said, one of the worst sins, defend yourself. That's interesting. But all that aside, 
are we so enamored, so exulting in the name of Jesus? It's all about Him, not about us. That we gladly suffer for His name. I have a lot to learn on this. But there is help. And that will come in verse 26 and following. We'll just mention it today. And next Lord's Day, we'll unpack it a little bit more. That who is this helper and the work of the Holy Spirit? But not only do we have the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, the prophets and others, Jesus himself, but we have the residing presence of God in the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. From the beginning, he's specifically talking about those disciples whom he called uh, in the early parts of this gospel and these 11 specifically that remain. And they are to be the foundation of the church. Uh, they, they go and they witness of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And throughout John's gospel, many who have turned to Jesus have been put out of the synagogue. You can read of one incident in John chapter 9. You come to Jesus, you're put out of the synagogue. You come to Jesus, you're put out of the religious community. You come to Jesus and your parents will, will deny you, reject you, not help you. You come to Jesus and you have Jesus. But are not alone. Now we have the Holy Spirit of truth. And throughout this section, the Holy Spirit is promised by Jesus. John chapter 14 verses 16 and 17. Again, chapter 14 and verse 26. Chapter 16 and verses 7 and 8 will come another promise of this Holy Spirit. The Spirit is there to help. In Romans 8, a different context and a different setting, Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And Paul, again, in his own testimony, Philippians 1 and verse 19, as he's bound and in prison, he says, I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So when we face trials, we face temptations, we face persecutions, we call. We call upon God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because He is right with us. He had promised He'd never leave us, promised to never forsake us. He is here. He is with you wherever, whenever, whatever. He is with you. You call upon Him, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you persevere. As I stand here, as we sit here together, we contemplate, boy, I wonder what I wonder what I would do. Would I hold on to the name of Jesus or would I deny Him? Would I do a Peter? God forbid I do a Judas. But we have the Holy Spirit. And what's the difference between a Judas and a Peter? The forgiveness of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit. To call out to Him. Be filled with the Spirit. 
Abide in Christ. And persevere. God, we call out now for this help. We ask that indeed you would bring the Holy Spirit in a new and powerful way, personally, in our lives. We ask that you might uh, wash us afresh with your presence. Come over us with your Holy Spirit. Oh, we, we seek not necessarily some ecstatic experience. Though we don't discount them wholeheartedly. But what we want most is the power to live a life of faithfulness. Divine power within to shape and form our attitudes, our beliefs, our convictions, yes, our behaviors. Increasingly, we may, we may face greater persecution. We know that indeed the world hates the ways of Jesus. We may experience it more. God, give us a spirit of holiness, of humility, even of blessedness for righteousness' sake. And make us to be the people you want us to be. Make us to be the church you desire us to be. A city on a hill. A light shining in a dark place. And oh, may we learn deeply to love one another that the light might shine. We have opportunities to love today and in the days ahead. For we have seen the passing of loved ones 